Isaiah chapter 59, if you will, turn your attention with me. This morning we'll be reading the entire chapter, which by the way has only 21 verses in it, not uh, 22 as I put in the bulletin for some unknown reason, uh, of which I'm not entirely certain. I think I glanced at the last verse and figured certainly it couldn't be uh, one long verse and must be two, So, uh, but uh, just 21 we'll be reading this morning, at least 21 uh, in my Bible. Isaiah is uh, continuing in chapter 59 now to reply to the complaint that was raised by the people in the previous chapter, Isaiah 58, that though they had feasted and though they had observed the, the uh, rituals and gone through their religion, uh, the religious actions, God did not hear them. God did not draw near to them. And the problem they concluded from this must be God. We've gone through the religious motions. We've fasted. We've, we've done it all. What's the problem? Why doesn't he respond? can he hear? Uh, is he too weak? Is that the problem? Why doesn't he answer? Why doesn't he reciprocate? Isaiah launches right in with an answer to those sort of questions, which turns out to be an expose on the, uh, the great universal problem that continues to this very day to plague us, uh, just as it did our spiritual fathers and mothers of old. And the, in the process, he also reveals, by the way, the solution to that problem, which also is as true today as Ever it was. Let's pray. Father in heaven, then we ask that you will open our ears, our hearts to receive your word and to be conformed to it and molded by it, to find ourselves in it, and more than that, to find you and hear your voice speaking to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened. Uh, that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to the law Honestly, they rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adders' eggs, they weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know and there is no justice in their paths. They've made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore justice is far from us. And righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. 
We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far off, for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west And his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream. Which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression. Declares the Lord. And as for me. This is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore. This passage must be one of the most poignant in the entire Bible on the matter of human sin and sinfulness. Yes, it's about Israel in particular, about them 700 years before the coming of Christ, the incarnation. But by quoting this passage from Isaiah, the Apostle Paul, uh, quoting it in his letter to uh, the Romans, shows that it really applies to all of us. The categories of sin described here that we've just read are universal. The reason Isaiah could write these things about Israel and that Paul could quote them in his own day and apply it as a general truth is because it's true for everyone. Every individual person in the world, Jew and Gentile alike, is described here 
We all have sinned. We've broken God's law. Maybe you feel like you've heard enough about sin already. Here we, here we go, another sermon about sin. Our family loves uh, to recall to each other uh, one particular episode, uh, some of the words from Deputy Barney Fife in an Andy Griffith episode. A visiting preacher had come to Mayberry from New York. What a privilege it was, the pastor told him, to have such a high-profile guest in the pulpit that week. And the congregation starts to listen to the sermon with rapt attention, but it isn't long before everyone is sound asleep, especially good old Barn. It's a sermon that I fear is, is uh, probably typical of uh, 20th century Americana. It's all about taking it easy and relaxing and slowing down and smelling the roses along the way, it's sort of moralism. And after the service is, is finished, and they're shaking the pastor's hand on the way out the door, Barn takes a hold of, the, of his hand and shakes it rigorously and says, that's one subject you just can't say enough about, sin. <laughs> of course, the preacher hadn't said a word about sin, as is so typical of so terribly many pulpits today. In or out of the pulpit now, the very idea of sin is little considered, unless, of course, it's something to laugh about, you know, a sort of silly, outdated, outmoded concept altogether. Nobody talks about sin, except perhaps, um, you know, when we're ridiculing pastors of long ago, whom we imagine you know, harangue their congregations week after week with uh, dark and guilt-inducing messages. We might hear words, of course, like, um, like mistakes. Well, that, that's used uh, today from our therapeutic pulpits uh, when referring to the wanderings of people from the path of good, whatever uh, nebulous path that might be by whoever's definition, but not sins. Oh, no. We'll not hear of that. So a passage like this one immediately sounds to us like nothing more than a relic from some unenlightened day of long ago. Nothing like what we moderns say, and certainly not very relevant. But it would be a big mistake for us to imagine as much. What God says here in Isaiah 59 is what he always says. What he said in Isaiah's day, what he said in Paul's day, what he says to us today. Who can doubt that though some of the metaphors are ancient-sounding, what God describes here in this passage is our very own culture in the United States of America today. We need only open our eyes and look around us to see how injustice and bloodshed so terribly mar our national life. We still run to evil, and if we're not running to do it, we're running to participate vicariously by watching it on the big screen or by, by, uh, through joysticks and, and game paddles and cartoonish characters in the video games. In Isaiah's day, he spoke of the the web weaving of sin like spiders. Well, what have we now but a web worldwide 
Uh, filled to the brim with all manner of iniquity, all at the click of a button on the mouse. The human predicament has not changed. Not one iota since Isaiah's day. Take truth, for example. Just, just truth and, and lies. Uh, there are any number of sins, of course, and consequences we might consider from the passage before us today. Injustice and violence and bloodshed and betrayals and oppression and so on. We've even considered some of those closely over the course of this series in Isaiah. But as I say, just take this matter of truth and lies. Lying has become a way of life in our society. Don't you hear in Isaiah's words here a description of our own modern America in verse 14? Truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Lying has become so much a custom that departing from lies is now a dangerous thing to do. It endangers people. It endangers their employment if they depart from lies. Their livelihood, in some cases even their very lives. One of you wrestled recently with the very real possibility of having to choose between falsifying records at your workplace or finding yourself unemployed. From the highest echelons of government to the clerk in the back room at the department store, lying has become the modus operandi. In trucking... It is required that every driver keep a record of every day of the year. 365 days have to show up in that record, whether on duty or off duty. Every quarter of every hour of every day, 24-7, has to be recorded, whether he or she was in the sleeper or driving or on duty or off duty. It's called a logbook, but Bill knows what it's called on the street the joke book, all right? Creative writing, yes, the joke book. And it's getting harder these days with uh, electric, electronic onboard recorders that uh, collect data and uh, even send it off to other places um, that record every movement that that truck makes. Every time the wheel turns, uh, but I still hear, even just uh, recently, of drivers keeping two logbooks. So I have to have one to show the policeman at the side of the road and another to account for the other driving hours. I heard one driver joke that uh, though he and the truck got home on Tuesday, his uh, logbook didn't show up until sometime on Wednesday. Sin is funny, hilarious, until... A drowsy driver crosses the median and kills an entire family in their van. And it's not so funny anymore. And nobody's laughing. In the world of ideas, lies are now presented unabashedly as, as truth. Remember all the rage 
Some years ago over Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, so popular because it claimed to reveal true things and controversial, of course, that cast aspersion on, on Jesus himself. Brown tells his readers on the novel's first page, all descriptions of artwork, architecture, documents, and secret rituals in this novel are accurate, and many believe that claim. One-third of Canadians who have read The Da Vinci Code, some 20% of the population believe Brown's theories and think that descendants of Jesus are alive today, according to a National Geographic poll. Even a New York Daily News book reviewer claims that uh, Brown's research is impeccable, a claim that uh, Brown loves to trumpet on his own website. Of course, that's absurd. Everything in the Da Vinci Code is wrong, except that uh, Paris is in France, London is in England, and Leonardo da Vinci painted pictures. All else is fabrication, writes one commentator. Don't they have editors at Doubleday in New York? Don't they have fact-checkers, asks Paul Meyer, co-author of The Da Vinci Code, Fact or Fiction? Put it this way, he said, there is not one ranking scholar in the entire world who supports what Dan Brown has done with history. But we've lived this way so long We even seem now to prefer it this way. It's become a way of life, at least, even in our national pastime. Roger Clemens is indicted by a federal grand jury for lying to Congress about using performance-enhancing drugs, the third high-profile athlete in as many years to be charged with lying about the use of banned substances. Now we can look forward to his trial in April, but only after Barry Bonds' trial in March. Marion Jones, we remember, for winning and then having stripped from her five track and field medals at the 2000 Summer Olympics and going to prison for making false statements to federal authorities about her use of performance-enhancing drugs, corporate bribery, government cover-ups, scientists adjusting statistics to support their global warming arguments and what has become nicknamed uh, last year climate gate. The reporting of fudged or even invented stories in the news media has become common fare. C.S. Lewis once said that accusing a journalist of lying was like accusing a dog of being bad at arithmetic. And what of the constant barrage of false advertising? And false thinking even about ourselves. A few years ago, some statistics were published in the Washington Post, according to a survey that the paper had commissioned and that was uh, conducted by them. 94% of Americans told survey takers that they were above average in honesty. 89% that they were above average in common sense, 86 above average in intelligence, 79 above average in looks. We even lie 
about how honest we are. And there's that pronoun. We. It's easy enough for us to sit here and point our fingers at Barry Bonds and Dan Brown. But the fact is we cannot look on a world of liars very long before we must find ourselves among them. Did you notice that shift of personal pronouns in the reading this morning? The person changes from the second person to the third person to the first person as you make your way through Isaiah 59. From your lips have spoken lies in verse 3 to they speak lies in verse 4 to we know our iniquities conceiving and uttering from the heart, lying words. Isaiah includes himself here. We. Because that's the way a Christian thinks. He cannot speak of another's sins. She cannot point the finger very long before the finger must be pointed back at self. Brothers and sisters, it is true that they have hands defiled with blood. But so do we. They run to do evil. So do we. They practice injustice. We practice injustice. They weave webs of deceit. We've woven our own webs. We are no better than they. We are the foremost of sinners. That is why Isaiah 59 turns so rapidly from a catalog of their sins to a confession of ours. We, you, I, are liars. And we still lie. You and I tend to turn things in conversation to our own advantage, to our own glory, to our own credit. Someone said of us Christians that we tend to round up figures when a higher figure would be to our benefit, the size of our church, and round them down when a lower number is to our advantage, our golf score. When we tell a story, we embellish it to make it more interesting or more often to make ourselves look better in them. Need I go on? We are liars. We are sinners. And what sins we've not actually committed outwardly, we've committed inwardly. And the sins we give ourselves credit for never having actually committed, 
we've actually not committed them for the simple reason we haven't had opportunity to commit them. Our sins, dear flock, abound. But, isn't that a glorious word? Isn't that a wonderful word? That's the best word in the whole Bible. But, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. God looked on a sinful world, yes, and it displeased him. And looking, verse 6, he saw there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Not that it took him by surprise, of course, uh, that there was no one to stand in the gap to bridge the gulf that separates sinners from God, that separation Isaiah spoke about in the beginning of the chapter, to enter a plea for unjust and wicked people such as we are. Yet there was genuine astonishment on God's part that no one took up his cause or proclaimed his truth. So what did he do? Did he shrug his shoulders and say, Oh, forget it. I have untold universes upon universes upon universes besides this one. I'll start anew somewhere else. Just scrap this one. Let this one slide to hell. What do I care? No. When no one else would or even could help, verse 16, his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in in zeal for a cloak. In other words, God takes the initiative. He takes the initiative in two powerful ways. First to judge and then to save. There is coming a day, my brothers and sisters, on which wicked deeds will be repaid to the full. The adversaries of God, who sin against God with high hand, as the Bible calls it, who hate God and spread lies about him, who sin, it seems, without regret and with delight, who make a boast out of sinning, God will judge from one end of the earth to the other, from the west to where the sun rises to the very coastlands. In other words, no place to hide. Nowhere to go. People will reap what they have sown. They will be repaid for their deeds. And God's judgment will strike like a a tsunami sweeping that nothing can stop. And it will rush relentlessly over those who will not repent. For you, Christian, something entirely different. Verse 20. A redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from their transgressions. That's you. That's you, Christian, who are turning from your sin to God, who are repenting and then repenting again for the sins that you commit against him in trust In faith, looking to the Lord, your Redeemer, your Savior. 
As a matter of fact, he's already come. And coming, he has laid down his life for you, for your sin. He's been crucified, and, and you with him. You are the liar. He suffered what your lies deserve. This is as though he says to you, your lies, all of your sins for that matter, are your fault, but they're my problem. Because I've made them my problem. And I've taken them on myself. And I've taken them to the cross. And I've become your Redeemer. I have come. And I am coming again. Finally to take you to myself. Redeemer in the Bible. It's a person, usually a family member, who takes on himself the responsibility for another's need, if, if, as if it were his own. If another were, were poor, it become destitute, deeply entrenched in debt, the Redeemer would come and pay it off. If she were sold into slavery, he would buy her freedom. What a perfect picture then, and exactly right for Isaiah to give us of Christ. Those are the very things He has done. He's paid the debt for your sin, suffering the wrath of God in your place on the cross, and in doing so, He has bought you. He's bought your freedom. And the fame of all this, of of your Redeemer in particular, will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. More of that next week, the Lord willing. And And the certainty of all of this, of the judgment on the wicked, the redemption of the repentant, even you, the salvation of every sinner who looks in faith to him is nothing less than his covenant itself. This is my covenant with them, says the Lord. God himself, as it were, raises his hand and promises and makes a covenant. Therefore, be it must. I have sworn by myself, because there was nothing higher on which he could possibly swear, that I am your God, and you are my people. That is my unbreakable covenant with you, and with your children, and with your children's children, from this time forth, and forevermore. Seth the Lord. Amen.